Well, welcome. This is episode 44 of The Professor in the Hat. We'll soon have done more episodes than there have been U.S. presidents, Professor Peter Van Onselen. Um, that's something to contemplate. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because episode 44 is my age, Hugh. So we've hit another milestone of at least note oh, to me. Happy days. Well, can, can, uh, I, can, I, can I have a whinge before we get into the actual meaty stuff? given that it is my birthday on Professor and the Hack, maybe not on date-wise, but in terms of episode numbers, damn this government and its crappy internet provision. Because I'm sitting here at home trying to do this with you, obviously under the circumstances of the bigger issue, which we'll get to. But if only they had rolled out the MBN properly, we could be doing it without any of the risks of our internet fading or not being up to the challenge. And it's only going to get harder as this crisis gets on because more and more people obviously are going to be using their home internet uh, as, the, as we all remain under a virtual lockdown. Now, the bigger issue is how they're handling COVID-19. I readily accept that. Uh, but at this little moment in time, allow me that little festering annoyance of a whinge. Well, it's interesting because, of course, people are, uh, are discovering the internet in a way that they never have before, at least the limitations of the broadband and so on. And it has sparked... Uh, We've seen Kevin Rudd way back into it, having a good slag off at uh, Tony Abbott and all who followed him for not delivering the internet that uh, that he, Mr. K. Rudd, would have delivered for Australia. And others have come back and said, yes, but the timeline for what you were doing would have left us all on some sort of, or not all, but many still on some sort of dial-up system and it would have been even worse. So um, I'll leave that for the uh, numerous internet uh, <laughs> historians, uh, uh, social historians of the internet. Um, while speaking of numbers, because we're up to episode 44, the numbers mm. from the front line starting to show that uh, something is working. Uh, the, the death toll tragically continues to rise. The infection rate continues to rise, but at a lower level. Are we flattening the curve? Has it been worth it, Peter? Well, I think we are flattening the curve. Uh, and, you know, all credit to the government for that. And perhaps... Some of that is what feeds into some of these news poll numbers that we'll no doubt get to a little bit later as well. But I, uh, yeah, let's just be clear about this. We all want our government to do the best job it possibly can. And I would argue that when you look at how we're doing on this versus how somewhere like America or the UK are going, and obviously preceding their difficulties, you already saw some of the problems in places like Italy and Spain, who are still, of course, enduring those problems. But we we might have been a little bit late in the sense that our flattening of the curve and the number of infections and deaths could have been lower than it is, as good as it is relative to other countries. But at least they didn't wait any longer. Don't you agree? Because if they'd waited another week or two, it's a finely balanced thing. Because look at the US and the UK. I would argue that they took a little bit longer to get their act together than we did in terms of their relative position with where they were based and infections were going on and now you see it can get all but out of control where flattening the curve becomes even harder because of the hit to the health system and the sheer volume of infections before lockdowns get put in place so congratulations to the government for getting us to where they did but you know let's just be clear about this they're a couple of weeks late could have been better but no complaints in overall terms because good god how much worse would it have would it or could it have been if they'd waited an extra week or two? That's how finely balanced this thing is. Absolutely. And that's stark. Of all the statistics that have come out, the stark number that struck me was that uh, New York City had more deaths in a day from COVID than its annual murder rate 
in any one of the last seven years. Yeah, I saw that and, as well. Amazing. Uh, and that's quite startling when you think of when you think of it. And uh, you know, some of those individual stories, people who want to, uh, you know, look into the New York Times for my money, it's worth a subscription. And uh, and of course, they're deeply involved in what is uh, the local aspects of their stories, and they're just story after story of horrific. Uh, circumstances uh, and of, of doctors going down uh, in, in one place uh, a third of the doctors and nurses in a hospital are sick um, in Brooklyn uh, you know and th th this is still an awful scene and it's funny how like all disasters one of the striking thing about disasters is that everyone it's there's an old line that says any soldier in a war only sees the war that's within 100 meters in front of him and it's mm. true that generals take the overall you know, scene and they can, it, it's all quiet on the Western front is essentially um, all about that because on the day that the hero gets killed, it was the, on a, the official reports all quiet on the Western front. The point I'm making is that your view about COVID will be immeasurably different if you're a doctor in a Brooklyn uh, emergency ward or you're someone in regional Australia uh, trying to run a restaurant. And, and so your perspective as to what makes good policy is they're, they're just inhabiting different universes because your individual circumstances are different. And the challenge for policymakers is to come up with something which meets uh, in proper balance all the requirements of all those different tasks. And one of the things that struck me over the weekend, and I, and I really want your insights on this, is the historical significance of what Scott Morrison has done particularly for me, the, the signal point being the $130 billion over six months on the JobKeeper allowance, uh, it just an, a spending which is unthinkable in any other context, and how at that point, he, as a conservative prime minister, basically tore up Thatcherite conservatism, mm -hmm. which says that a nation is the economy. Yeah, look, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we, in our last episode, I think it was, uh, you know, we were sort of, heaping a fair bit of praise on Scott Morrison for his ability as a leader to walk away from all those principles that underpin essentially his party and his side of the ideological divide in the major party divide here in Australia. Uh, certainly some of the, the, the richer elements of ideology that the Liberal Party is supposed to embrace, even though we've seen all sorts of fracturing in how it does approach those things. And I would probably argue that Scott Morrison is not an ideologue within the Liberal Party, far from it, going back to some of his decision-making as a cabinet minister before becoming prime minister, but we won't waste our episode talking about that. The simple point is he leads the Liberal Party, he leads the coalition, and he is embracing uh, elements of, you know, I guess if you like socialism, but it's never as simple as that, certainly anti-market uh, principles to try to save the system, uh, albeit save a version of the market system uh, that, that needs saving. But... Australians are embracing it. Uh, you know, we're going to get onto these news poll numbers I keep talking well, about. Well, let's get, let's uh, get onto them now. Because well, let's do it right now. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it, Hugh? Because Talk he, us through he, he has had a massive uptick in the better Prime Minister rating on news poll. He was trailing Anthony Albanese. Now he's streets out in front of him. It's something like, you know, he's in the low 60s, 61, I think, versus 29% as better Prime Minister. So what this tells us is in one poll differential, he has shot out as the leader. Now, that's partly because people want their leader to succeed in a crisis like this. It's partly because of how well he has done in this crisis relative to what could have been as we look around the rest of the world. I think it is people giving him credit for embracing job-saving and life-saving policies that he may not have necessarily 
had an ideological predilection to do, uh, and it overcomes some of these differences you talk about from the, the war analogy of people seeing what's in front of them, because the polling does become relatively broad, uh, and yet it shows this stark uplift. But, Hugh, what I think is interesting is he's a mile out in front as better PM because he's actually, he is actually the PM doing the job and people believe doing it pretty damn well. But he's also punched well out in front in his satisfaction rating, which had waned quite considerably in the wake of the bushfires failures that he's had in his Hawaiian adventure. That is back up. But, but uh, the two-party vote is still close. The Liberal Party, the coalition, I should say, are back in front on that score. But they're only in front by a couple of points. You know, Labor is well within striking distance. So what does that tell you? In a nutshell, that tells you that the enduring attitude between Liberal and Labor amongst voters is still within the usual margin of error, even if the government's had a slight uptick as the coalition in power. But what has really happened is there has been a garnering of support behind Scott Morrison, which tells you that people, Australians, believe that he is showing the leadership that they want and doing a good job. Now, that can change just as quickly as it's upticked. But I haven't seen this kind of a shift uh, since Tampa uh, with John Howard or September 11 with John Howard all rolled into one. And it's been in one fell swoop uh, in this poll, a real yeah, significant I've never, I've never seen an approval rating go up for a prime minister by 20 points in a single poll. Um, I, I might have missed something, but it's, it's certainly nothing I've seen. Um, and it, it is it is remarkable. Of course, we know, as Kevin Rudd knows, as Bob Hawke, uh, you know, the, the people who scale the absolute heights of these polls at various times knows these polls go down. Uh, but when mm-hmm. you consider where he was in the worst of those sort of handshake moments during the bushfire crisis, um, when he was completely at sea and, and appeared to be weak, the Hawaii lies, all that kind of routine, um, you know, maybe perhaps a, a message to all of us that uh, even as we fall and times seem hopeless, maybe something comes along which gives us another chance. One hopes it's not COVID, but, but that you can go back up again. I mean, the polls this far away from election don't mean much, but what they do mean is that he is in the public view by embracing policies that are not traditional coalition policies, but showing that he, he, he seems to care and he seems de- genuinely interested to keep people both well and also um, not thrown on the scrap heap uh, that people are satisfied with that as a, as a piece of progress. And yet, yeah, what I think is so important for the country in his numbers being where they are it's not really about how you think Scott Morrison has travelled over the years or indeed how you think he might go in the, the years to come. These are all challenges that have either been met by him politically or are yet to be met. What's so important about him having such strong numbers is that he now has evidently by that the capacity to make pronouncements and to try to calm or energise the nation or indeed scare the nation uh, if he thinks that is necessary to get a message across for change that has to happen in the context of the lockdown or whatever else it might be, people's social behaviour. He has the ability to do that now in a way where he will get listened to because if he's on the nose, it's not good for any of us in a time like this because it means that if he's trying to tell people you need to socially distance more or you need to stop spending because you know the economy requires this or you need to start spending because the economy requires that, whatever messaging he's giving, if he's a tainted political figure, it is harder for people to follow a leader who they don't respect or have a regard for. However, with these sort of numbers, what he says has more chance of being listened to and responded to in the way that he wants. 
And that is well, it gives, it gives him that it, yeah, it gives him that authority that, that he, he got that huge uplift in authority when he actually won the election instead of yep. just being the standard after Turnbull was butchered it, well, butchered it in Hawaii, but now yes. has it back, you know, and that is really important in a time like this. So give us an insight into his character, because we've all known a lot of politicians well, and you've made deep studies on certain politicians. Mm. And there are in leaders, doesn't matter whether it's in politics or otherwise, there are those kinds of machine men and women. And there are those who are confidence players who rise and fall basically on the degree to which they feel as if their confidence is up. Something like this is an enormous lift to a confidence player. Because mm. it does give that authority. It says, yes, I'm more popular than my government. My voice should be heard. They're cheering me out on the streets. But you get the feeling that Morrison is the kind of guy who um, psychologically is that much attuned and, and dependent on the kind of acclamation of the crowds? Or is he a different sort of a person? It's a, look, it's a really good question. If you'd asked me that a month ago, I would have said he's absolutely a confidence player. And that explains why he was moving from blunder to blunder in the wake of his Hawaiian trip and the bushfires and why he didn't start well in relation to this crisis with his comments around the footy and all the rest of it. You know, he really, I, would, I would have said a month ago, he's absolutely a confidence player. His confidence was down. It had been all year in the wake of how the year started for him, politically speaking. And, you know, maybe he's not up to this challenge as a result of that. How does that explain him pulling out the un winnable election victory well that was not really about confidence in a way was it it was just about the fact that okay fine the polls narrowed a little bit but he was the underdog so he had nothing to lose so he was going for it and, and he pulled off the remarkable win i've got a different view now i think that this crisis has transcended or morrison has transcended those elements that might have otherwise been there in his personality or his political persona i actually think the magnitude of what he's doing here has seen him no longer be a confidence player so i actually think whether this poll had come in good or bad for him, I think he would have had the same attitude going forward, which is this crisis is bigger than any one of us. The importance of what needs to be done is bigger. So if my polls go jettisoning backwards because people have got the shits with me, pardon my proverbial, then so be it because there are bigger issues at play. Whereas a month ago, I would have said, oh, you know, he's still thinking about the politics of this, which I think he was a month ago. But that all shifted in the last week or two. And frankly, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it, Hugh? Because I think the fact that it did shift is probably one of the factors that people noticed consciously or subconsciously, which makes them think he's doing a better job as prime minister because he's not just another politician. We're almost out of time, by the way. But where do you think on that? When I say out of time for a break, that is. Uh, do you agree with that? No, you know what? I'm going to hold these thoughts because I want to develop some of this and also the, the way in which he's running, uh, you know, how he's managing the national cabinet, the role of Josh Frydenberg um, and, and where the threats emerge to all of us mm. um, and to Scott Morrison. Let's take a quick break. We'll, we'll roll on in just a moment. Welcome back. This is episode uh, 44 of The Professor and the Hack. I should have uh, mentioned that I am the hack, Hugh Rimminson, and with me is a professor of political science at Griffith University and the University of Western Australia. And... Uh, Network 10's national political editor, Peter Van Onsen, but you probably knew all of that. But Peter, yes, I'm really interested in the mechanics of how this is working, the personalities who are emerging and how mm -hmm. it operates. Because it strikes me, I'll get on to Frydenberg in a moment because I think he's a key player in this, but it, it, it strikes me that um, 
Morrison started to look good. After that initial thing where we shut off the borders and he said there's a pandemic, he called it coming, he called it before the World Health Organization, and then it all got wobbly as hell. He started to look good when he seemed to give up on trying to control the premiers in the national cabinet process and being top down about it and recognizing, we talked about this a little earlier, that the, that the premiers uh, have their own agendas necessarily and their own powers. And he started to be more like, um, you know, the, the, the captain of the ship rather than the guy he was trying to, you know, stoke all the fires and, and you know, and man all the guns all at the same time. Yeah, look, he, sorry, can you hear me, Hugh? Okay. Oh, I thought I thought we I thought we suddenly lost each other. Um, yeah, look the the way that the way that they're they're all doing their bit uh, is is fascinating uh, to to watch because I really do think uh, that in terms of Scott Morrison's leadership, you know, he's trying to he, he's he's trying to run the show, but he's been largely doing it himself, and that's been shifting more recently, though, hasn't it? Don't you think? You know, as you sort of mentioned Josh Frydenberg. Uh, Christian Porter, his portfolios are really in the mix as well. Uh, and it's becoming a team effort the longer this crisis goes on, whereas at first it was all about Morrison because you just wanted the one leader trying to project the one message and it was hard enough. And he wanted to be the one leader. It's almost oh. like he had the insecurity that he needed to try to assert himself into every corner. And, um, and, and, he, and he's recognised that you can sit back, that everyone else operating, and these premiers by and large, are serious-minded people. Uh, mm. None of them are above criticism. Uh, each have their own things. Look at what Western Australia is doing, for example. It's completely, you know, on, in a literal sense, going off on its own. Um, but, Where this is uh, going to become harder, though, Hugh, I think, is going to be the more the crisis rolls on. Because at the moment, like, yeah, it's almost like the beginning of it was a bit shambolic because it was new. Later on, there is the risk of fracturing as different states take quite different views with where they're at dealing with the pandemic. Uh, and it'll be the job of Morrison to find a way to hold that together at the same time as allowing points of difference. You know, there will be necessary points of difference uh, because of different ways that the crisis is manifesting around the country, but also because of different opinions on on when, for example, these lockdowns have to be lifted and, and when border restrictions should or shouldn't be lifted. The, the delicate balancing act for Morrison, which will tell us whether he truly has transcended his previous persona politically, is whether he succeeds in holding that together or, or begins to fail here and there. We know his traditional personality as a political leader has been one where he's not great at conciliation and at, if you like, that managerial side of things because it's always been his way or the highway. He, he's shown a willingness and an ability to move away from that, but under times of stress going forward does he still have that uh, he's showing the indication that he will but that is something that we will only know when we see it fascinating can he learn and grow in the job this is it's a it's a like all politics ultimately it's a character study um so let's talk about some other characters christian porter in a moment but josh mm. frydenberg so critical to this and it's it's really interesting because in in time you look at you look at the costello howard relationship we look at the Swan Rudd one, which is probably even more analogous to where we are now because there's massive stimulus spending to get us out of a crisis. Now, they both famously and disastrously fell out. Um, Swan backing Gillard in the, in the great leadership tussles. Uh, and then their rewriting of history of the GFC, both have claimed, have tried to airbrush the other uh, right out of the game and claim credit. To, you know, it's been particularly unedifying how that has gone. 
Frydenberg for the time being and Morrison, from what we can tell, they seem to be working incredibly well together to bring in monumental changes to uh, the whole fiscal apparatus of the country in very short timescales uh, of decision making. What's your read on that dynamic and how important it is? Yeah, I think that is working well. And from what I can gather, there's, you know, a little bit like, you know, you mentioned Rudd and Swan. Yeah, they had their kitchen cabinet, as it became known, where there were stories written about the, the, the inner group within, not just, not just the leadership group, by the way, but the inner group within the, the cabinet uh, who were sorting this out. Uh, and it was, it was, was Gillard and Lindsay Tanner, wasn't it, with the yellow two players at that early stage? Yeah, it was Gillard, Tanner, Swan and Rudd. And, you know, obviously Swan and Tanner were there because they held the finance portfolios of Treasurer and Finance Minister. Gillard was there as the Deputy Prime Minister and, and obviously Rudd as, as Prime Minister. And they were known as the Gang of Four, who were basically doing all of this in terms of Australia's response to the GFC and making rapid-fire changes and, and making decisions that normally a larger cabinet would do. I think we've seen something similar here, not as a, a group of four, but as a triumvirate. Uh, which is Porter, Frydenberg, and of course the Prime Minister at, at the apex of it. I, I don't think that as Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormick's at the heart of this, for example. Uh, Peter Dutton, despite being the person who uh, is the Home Affairs Minister and narrowly lost the leadership in that showdown against Scott Morrison, he's been weighed down by COVID-19, obviously, in, in isolation for sections of time, but he's also not close uh, to the action. I don't think Matthias Corman is in this inner sanctum either, quite frankly. I mean, he's not an outlier, let's be clear about that. But the group within the group within the group, I think, is a triumvirate uh, of Porter, Frydenberg and the PM himself. Now, we're a long way from this, Hugh, and it's not about this, but boy, isn't that interesting when you look at uh, the balancing act of both Frydenberg and Porter, because they are generation next. Uh, Morrison intends to be around for a long time to come, but those two one day will square off. You know, Frydenberg is the treasurer. And he's the deputy liberal leader and the obvious heir apparent for however many years down the line that happens. But Porter, wow, you know, he is leader of the house and therefore managing all of the stuff around when parliament doesn't, doesn't come back and what does or doesn't pass through the chambers in relation to these august policy scripts. But he's also the industrial relations minister at a time of remarkable deal making with the unions. And he's also the attorney general at a time of remarkable infringements on civil liberties in the name of social distancing and all the rest of it. So, yes, Frydenberg is the deputy leader, and yes, he's got that economic package at the guts of everything he's doing, but Porter, with the three portfolio areas, two policy and, of course, leader of the House, he is also there and also has the ear of the Prime Minister. So that's the big three that are running this government and managing this crisis. At the moment, all credit to the PM. He's the one that gets the personal polling, according to News Poll, but those other two have lifted relative to the rest of the cabinet absolutely it's fascinating is it and, and uh, that all will have their, their their chapters written in the histories that will be written in times to come but of course if scott morrison maintains anything like the uh, personal opinion approval ratings that he's got at the moment the rest can wait as long as they like as fellow uh, <laughs> yeah. had to because this will be morrison's show off into the distance uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves though there's um a, a lot yet to go and what i think is there's two things I want to want to raise with you. One is uh, Sally McManus and the ACTU, the role of the ACTU in working with Porter and trying to work through uh, these supports for workers. Um, but uh, in that, 
one of the things which is interesting is the societal shifts that we're seeing and people already positioning for where we might be as we start to emerge out of COVID. Um, we don't know. It's looking more promising than it did a couple of weeks ago, but you'd have to be hugely optimistic to think this isn't going to be overhanging all policy matters and societal matters for the next couple of years, at least. Um, and we see from Sally McManus already, she's saying that when we emerge, we need a societal shift away from casual work back towards permanent work again, permanent jobs, because she says we've seen just how exposed the individual is at the first time that something bad happens. It's people, particularly on casual jobs, who are the first to be flung to the curb. And, um, and, and these are profound arguments for the nature of Australian society going forward. It's early days. How do you see those stakeholders uh, positioning themselves coming out of this? Yeah, I, I think how those various stakeholders react is going to be really interesting because, you know, just starting with the trade unions, they have been deliberately conciliatory just to try to get this done uh, with a Liberal Party who is usually quite hostile towards the trade union movement and vice versa, I guess, in fairness. Uh, but Christian has been one of the marked moments in this. Christian Porter has worked well with the trade unions, but just in the last 24 to 48 hours, the trade unions have started to arc up, as you say, about some of the things like casuals getting left out. And more recently, we've seen uh, the response from the government that, well, bad luck, we're not changing that side of the policy. They've been conciliatory to a point. It's almost <laughs> at the same time that the news poll has come out, frankly, that they've decided to go, okay, that's enough. You know, we know we're getting supported here. We've drawn a line on this. Deal with it. Where does that leave the union movement or Labor, for that matter, going forward? Well, they'll continue to voice concerns about those casual workers who are missing out on this package. But I think that could be the longer-term political risk for the government if they're seen to have shut out certain sections of society from some of the benefits, that's a saw that can be picked at uh, by some mm. of these interest groups along the way. But at the moment, for example, ACOS is pretty supportive of the package overall, despite some grumblings along the way. And that's where the PM's able to pick off special interest groups one by one in a way, isn't he? Because he did it with the start of his rhetoric when announcing the package. You know, he said, some people will think we've gone too far, i.e. your Andrew Bolts and your IPAs. Some people will say we haven't gone far enough, i.e your union movement, ACOS, and perhaps even the opposition as well. Uh, he can neatly walk the balance on this one to some extent and, and take the mainstream with him, which is what, uh, for a long time, Howard managed to do. Yes, and, uh, you know, that's probably where you want to be in the course of this argument. But um, you can see the union movement is already suspicious that under the mechanisms by which these uh, job keeper mm. arrangements are going to be put into place and, and, and some of the other, you know, the adjustments to working conditions so that people uh, can have the flexibility to drop a little pay, to change their holiday arrangements, et cetera, to stay in employment, that, uh, you know, Sally McManus is quite clearly uh, on the balls of her feet around the thought that there are going to be uh, employers who are going to see this as an opportunity, rather work choices like, to uh, take away um, worker rights uh, where they're not, where those adjustments aren't needed to be made because there are sections of the economy that are that are still going along okay, uh, even as others collapse. Um, does she have a point? Yeah, I think she does actually, um, and that's all the kind of thing that'll only come out in the wash, won't it, uh, going forward. 
not to the individuals who do get exploited by unscrupulous employers. That happens in the here and now. But the stories of it and the, perhaps the political response, if the government was perceived to not be agile enough to, to deal with that, that's a longer-term issue for this government and a longer-term play by the unions. So the gloss can come off. We're still some way away from an election. But if, it, if, if employers overplay their hand and there are stories, you remember how uh, when the stimulus payments came in after the, uh, the GFC, and all that money was pumped out through the building, the education revolution, money being pumped out through schools. Uh, and, of course, there was pink bats. Um, but if you look at the schools, for example, the Australian ran a campaign, the Australian newspaper ran a campaign where virtually on the front page every day was a school that had paid $600,000 a century for a brick shed. And in other words, they, the Auditor General found that 97% of the spending on the, on the, that went through this building the education revolution uh, scheme, vast sums of money at the time, was well spent, mm. well targeted, and did its job. But if you look at the way in which it could be teased out, uh, it looked like all of it was profligate spending, appalling behaviour, and that started to fix in the minds of people that the government running all this was, um, uh, you know, not managing the finances properly. If you look back at the work choices argument, if you start to see cases and there is publicity around cases, individual workers being badly dealt with by, by employer, employers who are taking advantage of a crisis to really kind of crank down on people, not using flexibility for the benefit of the general economy, but for their own benefit. That's the kind of stuff that can get up before the next election and start to make Scott Morrison not look like the saviour of the nation, but a man who is a heartless bastard who let bad people do bad things to good people. And that's where it's going to be fascinating to watch two different elements of this with, uh, if you like, an umbrella thing to always keep in mind. The umbrella thing to always keep in mind is in the context of managing a crisis such as this, does that become Scott Morrison and his government's get out of jail card for accountability or culpability in the context of some of these issues uh, that are going on? Now, it might would be my assessment on that. But where they're at their weakest is in industrial relations. As you say, Hugh, we know that uh, in relation to what work choices did to the Howard era, if they're perceived to have let employers get away with it. Where they're at their strongest is on the economy. And, and labour is the exact opposite of that. So there were not really stories in the wake of the GFC about workers getting exploited in some way or another, because labour, whether that's true or not, that's not an area of policy weakness for them. But there were stories about misuse of money. As you say, it might be isolated examples of, of that happening. Uh, but you know, the profligate spending meant that those isolated examples are easily splashed in newspaper coverage. I don't see this government facing a problem on that front because they always lead as the better economic managers in people's minds, whether that's true or not. So I don't think that hurts them in the way that it hurt Labor post the GFC. But you're right, uh, on the other side of it, when we're talking about how people feel about workers' rights and workers' exploitation, they know that the Liberal Party more traditionally is less sympathetic to those problems than Labor is. So that could be their area of weakness. But as I say, the umbrella issue is, does it matter though, when people were worried about just getting on with ensuring that too many jobs didn't get lost and it was a crisis situation? We'll see. We're almost out of time, Hugh. So your final thoughts? Well, my final thoughts, I guess, is that we've still got a long way to go. Uh, there's plenty, been, uh, plenty of money been thrown at trying to save jobs. 
we're now looking already, business is starting to look towards, uh, with some impatience towards when we can start to lift some of these restrictions, but that is for another time. Uh, Peter Van Onselen, once again, thank you. Thank you for listening, by the way, all our loyal podcast listeners, and we'll have another episode out before, uh, before Easter. Um, stay well. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.